Well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please open to Nahum chapter 2. As you're turning there, I do want to give a shout out to all the dads here. Um, I like to say that you guys are a blessing and you guys are awesome. And I'm not saying that because I am a father. It's not self-serving, but I am grateful to all the fathers here that are ministering to our church and to their family as well. And if you have a father, go and give them a hug afterwards or do something nice and special for them. Because it is Father's Day, and it's the only day where we honor our fathers. No, it's not. It should be every day, just like Mother's Day. Nahum chapter 2 is going to be the text for us this morning. Let's start by reading the entire chapter for us before we get into the teaching of God's word. Nahum chapter 2, verse 1. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, the splendor of Israel. Even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When he is prepared to march and the cypher spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance It's like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall, and the mantelet is set up. The gates of the rivers are open, and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away, and her handmaids are moaning like the the sound of doves beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking. Also anguish is in the whole body and all their faces are grown pale. Where is the den of lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lions, lioness, and lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them. The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lioness, and filled his lair with prey and his den with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lion. I will cut off your prey from the land. And no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Lord, we praise you and worship you this day and every day, knowing that your word is truth and that all that we have to know you is found in your book. We pray that as we study your word this morning, that it would cause us to have a greater love and fear for you that will compel us to worship you more each day. pray these things in your son's name. Amen. If you ever debated against a non-Christian 
about creationism or evolutionism, inevitably you'll talk about certain evidence. Uh, you'll see certain fossils, and a non-believer will look at this fossil that's in a mountain and say, see how the tectonic plates move up and down, and that's how the fish bones got up in the mountains. At the same time, Christians will look at the same fossil and think, see, this is evidence of the flood, that there was this universal flood, and that's how the fish bones got up there. Usually people who embark in these debates can both look at the same evidence and can explain it in two completely different ways. And this phenomenon really boils down to perspective. Not where you stand physically, obviously, but where a person stands in their own heart. Depending on where one stands, two people can look at the same thing and and can reach two completely different conclusions. In the same way, believers and non-believers can look at Scripture and have two completely different responses. If a person is saved, you'll look at God's word and you'll rejoice because it reveals the power of our God. Any text of your believer will come and make you a greater worshiper of Jesus Christ. At the same time, a non-believer can have the same Bible, can read it, but be disgusted, distraught, and even hate God's word. Two completely different conclusions. We're taught in seminary to always preach to our flock, to always preach to feed our people. And in this text, I think it's intended that we speak to both the believers and the non-believers in the room. Because I think this is what Nahum was doing. When he wrote this text, God inspired him to write this for both the Jewish people and the Ninevites. A little background about this book. Nahum is about two generations after the book of Jonah. You remember Jonah. He was a prophet from the Lord, and he went to go and minister to Ninevites. He did not want to do it, but when he went, he went to this group of people that were evil in the, and basically known for their, their, their violence in the, in the whole known world. And he resisted, but God made him change his heart by making him go into the waters and being in the belly of a fish for three days. He goes and declares this message of judgment, and the entire nation repents. Two generations later, this entire generation has forgotten about what Jonah has done. Every one of these people has gone back to their wicked ways. They've gone back to their idolatry. They've gone back to their, their murders and violent acts. Now when we get to this book, Nahum, God is giving them a warning again. But what's different between Nahum and Jonah is that when Jonah preached the message of judgment, the entire nation repented, and God relented his judgment. But when we get to this book, God is giving them a judgment, and these people, their hearts are hardened. So when we get to this text, again, this is a text to both the Jews and the Gentiles, those people who are followers of Jesus, or followers of Yahweh, and those who are against Yahweh. And they have two completely different responses. The same text, depending on where you are at, you'll either see this as a blessing or it will offend you. The same text will can cause two different responses depending on where you stand. Here we have four perspectives of judgment that will give believers hope, but at the same time give non-believers distress. You guys hear that noise? That's not me, right? I'm not going crazy. <laughs> distress. No. <laughs> 
so we'll try to focus on the text here. So four parts of judgment that causes us as believers to rejoice, but at the same time will cause non-Christians to dread. The first point is the declaration of judgment, verse 1 and 2. The declaration of judgment. Notice in verse 1. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. This portion of the judgment continues on from this last chapter. This entire section actually is a a kind of poem. It's designed for Israel to to repeat this and to to, to dwell on this, to dwell on the coming judgment of God. This is not like those doomsday cult people that, that claim that judgment is going to happen and it doesn't. This is a real threat from God. Israelites would meditate on this poem and would probably hum this to themselves and any, and, and in light of any type of injustice that is before them. In the original Hebrew, the last verse of chapter 1 actually begins chapter 2. And this this portion here, this, this portion of scripture, is a challenge to the Ninevites from God. This is a kind of battle cry, a declaration of war, a, a warning shot. And this is what you, some people might call a divine smack talk. Uh, he is, this, if you were using lawyer terms, he's telling them to lawyer up, get ready, be ready. God is essentially threatening the Ninevites. And notice these four imperatives in the first verse. Man, watch, strengthen, summon. All is calling them out. God is challenging them to go all out in terms of their defense and their offense. It would be like if someone wanted to go against a country and telling them to get their navy, their army, and their air force, and every form of military. Get them all ready because the enemy is coming. Bring out all that you have. And God is doing this because he wants to show them his power. God is threatening you, too, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus. And God's threat must not be taken lightly. In 2013, some of you guys remember this, the Syrian government decided to use nerve gas against its own people. And when that happened, the whole world was upset, and they looked to America, and they decided, what are we going to do with this? And the president at the time said that if the Syrian government decides to do this again, that they will act. And the Syrian government saw that threat, and they didn't care. They ignored it, and they gassed their people again. And what resulted was that the United States chose not to do anything. And this sent a message to the entire world that you don't need to take America seriously. That whatever threats that they have, just ignore it, because they're not going to bite. God's threat is loaded, and it's actually and it actually happened to the Ninevites. What's interesting, as you read this first two verses that God plays both the hero to the Israelites and the villain to the Ninevites. Those that are for God will observe the wrath of God to sinners, while those that are against God are going to be receiver of God's judgment. God has ordained that the Ninevites be destroyed by the Babylonians, and everything that is about to happen is going to happen exactly the way that God details it here. Every word will be fulfilled. God used the Babylonians against the Ninevites for their sin against the Israelites. Not only will God destroy the Ninevites for their sin, but he will also restore Israel to their former glory. 
Verse 2, for the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, like the splendor of Israel, even though the devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. God will restore all that the other nations have destroyed. The Israelites can't defend themselves or get back what they've once lost, but God is able to. God is the only one that could give them back all that they've lost. Israel is to find both confidence and comfort in God. The seemingly destructive aftermath of the Ninevites to the Israelites in the past will be restored by God in the future. What is seemingly impossible to man, God, or God, it is possible. The the eminence that once belonged to the Israelites during their prime will one day return to its fullest. Now imagine if you were Israelite and you heard about this. And uh, these two verses should bring you tremendous hope and tremendous joy knowing that God is going to give you and restore all the things that you've lost in the past. So as long as you trust in him. And as Christians, God's judgments revealed in scripture must bring you hope in this life. If God has fulfilled in the past, not once but multiple times, his promises, then you can know that the promises in Scripture that has not been fulfilled yet will be fulfilled one day in the future. His warning to the foreign nation here is to show the security that we can have in all of God's words. How God deals with his enemies are going to go exactly like he said. At the same time, imagine if you were a Ninevite and you heard and you read or read this portion. You would think, you, you might be skeptical. You might think this is not going to happen you might just brush it off as just another little fairy tale. The, de- the declaration of judgment would seem fictitious to you. And for the non-Christian, this portion should be offensive to you. If God's word happened to his enemies in the past, it will happen to you if you are currently an enemy of God. God's reassurance to his people lets you know what you are missing out non-Christian will miss out on the peace of God. God's blessing and protection for all of eternity is only for those who are rescued by God for God. I wonder how many Ninevites would have repented if they knew that the written word here in Nahum would actually come into place. I know that there are many people in hell right now that wish that they took God's judgment seriously when they got the chance to. They knew something that you are rejecting today, that God's judgment in Scripture will happen. Not only can believers find hope in the declaration of judgment, while non-believers are disturbed by the declaration of God's judgment, but believers will find hope and non-believers will find distress in the detail of judgment. Our second point, the details of judgment, verse 3 to 7. Verse 3, The shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. And he is prepared to march. And the cypress spears are brandished. It is likely that all of their gear is red because it is designed to intimidate. When you see them, they're all in red. It's supposed to show that either they're a bloody mess because of all the people they've killed and this will give them, this will strike fear for people looking at them, but it's supposed to give confidence to those wearing it. Their chariots are also reinforced by very strong steel. And this idea is that it's seemingly impenetrable. It's also, 
is also likely that this chair is a moving target. They'll go back and forth, and even if you tried to hit it, if you were able to hit it, it might not penetrate through. Verse 4. Chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. Now there's this contrast here. These chariots that as strong as they are, they're shown to to be confused and, and going back and forth. Even though they have the vehicles that was intimidating and known to the whole world as, as these war machines, they were running around confused and scared. When God strikes them down, they would have no idea what God is doing and will be running around madly throughout the city. When God floods the city, which will cause all the chariots to just do one thing, flee. They would not have, they would not be uh, intimidated by others, but rather they'll be running for their lives. Verse 5, he remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall, and a mantlet is set up. The noble and wise leaders are called out for their uselessness. They can't. They, they can't give advice. They can't give guidance. They can't give any help to the Ninevites. The nobles aren't doing their jobs. These people fail to do what they're supposed to do. Things are are all in disarray, and everything's out of place. The nobles are called out and they are and they stumble because this is not what they're used to. Being defeated makes them out of their elements. This shows how crazy things will be for the Ninevites. Their leaders, those that are supposed to watch over them and guard them, are unprotected and they need to run to the walls. Verse 6, the gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. The Ninevites lost their greatest defensive um, part in this wall. These gates are destroyed and they are unable to go back. This palace is completely dissolved. Historians write this way, that the fall of Nineveh is a series of heavy rain that swelled up from the Euphrates that flooded part of the city and overdrew the walls for length for about two miles. The details that God has laid out in his word are, are, are recorded in history is astonishing that both the secular writing and the Bible go hand in hand here, that historical evidence prove what God's word has written 15 years prior to the fall of Nineveh. Verse 7, it is fixed. God's plan is set. Nothing can change. God is sovereign, God's sovereign plan. He knows every single detail and he will act on it. God only not only prophesies it, but he also fulfills it. You know, it's only partially impressive if someone knows what the future is going to happen. But it's even more impressive to be the one that acts and controls the exact outcome. Look at the uh, middle part of verse 7. She is stripped, she's carried away, and her handmaids are moaning like the sounds of doves beating on their breasts. You notice that these, the queens the, and the handmaids, they're taken into exile. If the queen isn't protected, how much more are the regular citizens? The details that happen, ex- these details happen exactly the way it's written. And if you're Israelite, you see this, you will be very attentive to God's hand in this judgment. Because God knows every detail, and you're going to be observed. You're going to watch every little detail. He knows 
that the Ninevites are, were going to be destroyed, and he knew how the leaders would react and, uh, based on the judgment that they have on them. Now the women will be protected, and all of them will be taken out. Our God is a God of every little detail. God's sovereign plan is fulfilled through the providence that he sets up. Every detail is God's detail, and all are under God's watchful eye. All of these words happen exactly the way that God said it would. God is in absolute control. There's a theological spectrum in terms of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And we, in this church, we're reformed, so we believe in God's sovereignty. But if you push that to the extreme, we get to this thing called hyper-Calvinism. Basically, it means that uh, God is sovereign over all things, so we're not responsible for anything. On the other end, the Arminians, if you, they believe in free will, that God doesn't dictate it, uh, and control you or control the events. Rather, you, just, you have your own free will. But if you push that to the extreme, you get to this thing called open theism. And open theism is, is this idea that God is actually not in control. Um, he, he's just as surprised by world events as you are. He's just kind of like waiting for, to see what's going to happen next. And I understand the theology and the, the reasoning behind it, because oftentimes, open theism, they, they're, they're for this, because whenever there's someone that's suffering, and the question is asked, why is this happening? Why did God allow this to happen to me? And people that are open theists try to, in their way, in their own way, try to cover God, try to you know, protect God's uh, character and personality. So they say, oh, God doesn't know. He's, he's, he's just as surprised as you are. And if you imagine if you are someone that's suffering from terminal illness, does that give you comfort knowing that God knows just as much as the doctors that are are caring for you? Or does it give you more confidence to know that God is sovereign over all things, that every little detail in your life God is in control of? He knows everything about you, he knows everything that's going on, and he's watching over you. It should give you great comfort knowing that God is in control over all things. It would be a dreadful thing to worship a God who is only a few steps ahead of you. But our God, the Bible's description of God, is not that our God is a God that's just a few steps ahead of you. No, he knows every one of your steps. He created the path that you're on. He knows where you're headed. What great comfort is in knowing that God knows every detail and is in control of everything. We call this the doctrine of concurrence, that God uses every providential means to fulfill his sovereign will. Nothing happens in reality that God doesn't know about. Occasionally, I would go and meet up with some of you when I go downtown, and sometimes I'm not good at planning in terms of just taking the Muni. There's like a Muni station right down the street, and I would go out, and I would, when I get to the corner, I would see the Muni just going by the neighborhood, and I would think to myself, oh man, like... Should I, run to, should I try to run to West Portal and catch the Muni, or should I just wait here? And oftentimes, oh, I'll just wait here. I'll just text a person. I'll be late. Um, you know, God isn't like that. God isn't like me, where it's like, okay, something passed by, and I'm, oh, I wish I, knew, I was there. I wish I was there at the right time. God knows. God doesn't say, my bad. God knows exactly what's going to happen. Nothing surprises God. Nothing goes before the Lord that he, that, that he's, that he doesn't know. You should, it, at the same time, it should cause great distress for people who do not know him because your sin is before the Lord. God knows every single thing. There is nothing about you that you have done openly or in secret that God does not know. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an all-knowing, all-powerful, and an all-present God. 
is why if you were Jew in the original uh, context, you would be brought to a state of such joy and comfort because they know that God will deliver them exactly the way that he, that he wrote it. At the same time, if you're, in, if you're a Ninevite, you probably at first think that this is all a lie until it actually happens. You might think to yourself, you might suppress God's word until it actually happens before you. This is true for believers and non-believers that, that if, you tr- if, if you know that God's word is true, it will happen before you. Believers long for it, and when it happens, it brings believers great joy. And for non-Christians who spend their entire lives rejecting and hardening their heart to God's word, thinking God's word is a lie, will only come to think and will be surprised when God's word actually happens. The details of both heaven and hell are detailed in scripture. It is intended to give hope for you depending on where you stand, or fear depending on where you stand. When you see the verses about heaven that speaks of the place without sin, without pain, or being in the presence of Jesus, and every other detail promise that's revealed in Scripture, you can have absolute comfort knowing that this will happen, that this will be our future. At the same time, the Bible speaks of hell and how it's a place of judgment and torment and how it's a place of everlasting pain and suffering. Every little detail about hell will also come about. Not only can a believer find hope while non-believers dread over the declaration of judgments and the details of judgments that are revealed in Scripture, but believers find hope and non-believers find dread over the distress in, that's revealed in judgment. Our third point, distress in judgment, verse 8 to 12. This is verse 8. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water <coughs> throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. The Ninevites, they were in a peaceful place. And they weren't peaceful in the sense of, like, they were all good because they were right with the Lord. They were peaceful because of all the money and all the things that they've conquered throughout the ages. Yet, the Lord is going to remove that. This imagery of a pool is significant and appropriate to describe Nineveh. Nineveh was a place where many people would go to to draw as rich resource from because Nineveh was a really wealthy place. The modern day equivalent for us would be Shasta's Lake. This is the water reservoir in California. It was like, imagine that entire reservoir, suddenly all the water disappearing. It would be confusing to us. Or if the Yosemite suddenly is depleted of all its greenery and its natural beauty, it would be unsettling and a troubling image. In this case, Nahum speaks of Nineveh with this type of this prominence and stability. At one point, there is peace, and, and, and God is going to remove all of that. Notice that they said, now they are fleeing. Nineveh would have been a place to be, but now people are running out of Nineveh. People fled because of what's happening, and, the, and, and they are afraid because this flood destroyed the wall. And, and at the time, when the wall broke, the Babylonians just walked right in. This wall broke uh, by the flood, and if you imagine, like, there was a siege around Nineveh, and they were unable to get through. And by this divine act, the Euphrates flooded and it, it destroyed part of the wall, and the Ninevites went in, you know, the, the Babylonians went in through that one area. 
Notice that when that happened, they said, stop, stop. But no one turns back. The walls break down, and now there is this panic. The nation was known in, for their murderous pursuit, and now they are being pursued. Someone randomly seems to shout to them to stop running, but they do not listen. The more, majority of them do not dare to even take a split second to look back to the shoulder to see what's going on. There is a great distress in all of Nineveh, just like what God has said. Now, there was a distress once before when Jonah shared the gospel. and He told them of, of the coming judgments. There was a distress then, but the difference between then and now is that back then, in the time of Jonah, they heard this, they cried, and they repented. Now they hear the judgment, and they choose to run for their lives. They just depended on themselves. Verse 9, plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limits to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. In the past, the Ninevites would boast of their riches and success, but when God poured out his judgment on them, they would lose them all. Nineveh was a, had a tremendous amount of wealth. Uh, there was this quote I found that described the, the wealth of the Ninevites. They said that in 1988-1990, they found this Assyrian tomb uh, for one of the queens there, about 25 miles south of where they thought Nineveh used to be. And when they opened up, they found gold everywhere. There was gold jewelry, gold bowls and dishes and other valuable. God is, contr- is in control over the rise and fall of the wealth in every nation. The nations would have plundered and raided and got all this wealth from other nations. They used to flaunt it to their enemies. The security that, that once brought them from wealth is no longer securing them. We know that the Bible doesn't speak of having wealth as a bad thing, but it does speak on those who love money. The Bible speaks against idolizing wealth, to to depend on wealth. Proverbs 18.10 tells us that there is a sense of security for those who who believe, who trust in wealth, but they see it as like having an imagination. These things, depending on wealth, is just a false type of security. The wealth didn't protect the Ninevites, especially during the time of destructions. In the same way, if you trust in money, it will not be helpful during the time when you are about to die. Don't trust in money, but trust the God that's in control over all the resources of the world. Verse 10, she is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body and all their faces grown pale. The human reaction to all of these plundering is evident by their tremendous fear and sorrow. Notice these terms, hearts melting, knees knocking, anguish over the whole body, faces growing pale. Their hearts, the control room of their joy, is broken. Their knees that once held up their pride is now shaking and knocking against one another in fear. Their body, which was at one point experiencing pure bliss, is now feeling anguish all over. Their faces that was once filled with life is now drained as if there is no life left. This scene shows the reality of the situation, that the judgment of God is terrifying. Sin always leads to sorrow. 
This is both a warning to believers and a warning to non-believers that sin leads to sorrow. For those who have given up their lives to Christ, their life is new and the consequences of their sin is taken care of and is done away with. We know that as believers that our sin is is taken away with because of Jesus Christ, that he took the, the weight of our sin. This is why he's known as the man of sorrows, because he had to endure the consequences of our sin. But that does not mean that we can go and live our lives in sin, because even in our new life, there are still moments where we're tempted to sin. And if we fall into sin, it will make us miserable. At the same time, for non-Christians, you may be suffering in your life, but the greatest suffering has yet to come. In hell, you will wish that you will suffer like this life. The pains of this life would seem like a comforting balm compared to the pain that is coming for sinners. Embrace Jesus while there's still a chance. Verse 11, where the dens, where's the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, lioness, and lion's club proud with nothing to disturb them. This taunt continues in the form of a rhetorical question. Lions were a big deal to the Ninevites back then. It was used both as sports and and as a metaphor. In terms of sports, uh, I know some of you are you guys like fishing. You guys fish. You got you buy your rods, you buy your nets. You just sit, you, you go to a nice location. You cast your rods, your net into the sea or in the water, and then you just wait and you catch them and you pull them out. Um, others of you hunt for things like birds and deer. Uh, and, you know, this is fine, I guess. It's, it's Christian liberty. For, um, but these Ninevites, they went one step further. They hunted lions. Uh, back then, these Ninevites did it for sports. And they, they didn't have the type of technology that we had. They didn't have, like, you know, guns and rifles. They had bow and arrows and spears. Your men were men back then. But actually not really, because back then when the kings, and when they went out to hunt, sometimes they would be intimidated, so they had other people hunt for them. And when they catch the lion, they're like, okay, king, you can come now. And it's like, okay, and they would just stand and pose next to it. Uh, there are a lot of paintings now, if you look it up, where you see this king next to like a dead lion or a captured lion. Some of them is just because they have people to help them catch these lions. The result, whether, you, whether these people hunted them for sport to kill or to capture them, it's to show that they have dominion over Lions, you know, lions were known as even to our time, like the king of the jungle. Lions are intimidating because these lions, unlike fish that can't hunt you, like you know, fish isn't like they don't throw something out of the sea like an iPhone and try to catch humans and drag you into the water. Lions actually will hunt you if you're in the wilderness and there's a lion they'll they'll prowl around looking for you. So it, it is really intimidating. So to catch a lion or to kill a lion. Lion shows that you are brave and, how, and even how powerful you are. Lions were also used as a metaphor to describe royalty and greatness. Even back then, they assumed that lions were the king of all the predators out there. So to call yourself a lion has implications. And Nahum wonders where this royal lion is. Because even back then, people that call themselves lions are under this royal line, that they're of, of noble descent. This nation that was at one point seemingly unopposed, has now met their match against God. The one that seemed so brutal and ruthless at one point are now driven away. Verse 12, The lion tore enough for his cubs. 
killed enough for his lioness and filled his lairs with prey and his den with torn flesh. These self-proclaimed lions that had so much to feed their own royal family and, and fear that they impose onto others, people that saw, <coughs> excuse me, People that saw this royal family did more than just admire them, but they were greatly intimidated by them. God is going to remove them and make them completely done away with. And for those that are Christian, we, should, we worship the lion from the tribe of Judah. But unlike the, the way that the world describes the lion, Jesus is a king that has no competition. He is the king of all. Again, this portion of the text is intended to be a taunt against Nineveh, so that so so this is as if uh, God is trying to be sarcastic to the Ninevites. No matter how bad we may feel from any sort of injustice or suffering that comes from those that are higher than us, whether it's in social ranking or society, it means nothing because we worship the God that has the highest position in all of creation. If you are a non-Christian, the question I have for you is who or what is a king in your life? Who is a king or what is the king in your life that you try to run to for protection? If Jesus is not your king, expect your world to eventually fall apart. Just like how the Ninevites trusted in their own safety and strength, but was eventually destroyed by the God of the Bible, so you too, if you do not repent. The distress that you will find, that you will feel, is far worse than losing all your material possessions in the world. The agony that is coming for you, non-Christian, will make you wish that you counted the cost wisely. There are many people in hell that wish that they saw the vanity of their worldly possessions and wish that they gave all those up to follow Jesus. What is the point of having the world if you lose your soul? Don't make that mistake. Your soul is far more valuable than the things of this world. So give up the things in this life so you can preserve your eternal life. Hindsight is always perfect. My hope is that you won't have this hindsight while you're in hell. Rather, you accept the Savior now so that you can be delivered from this outcome. Not only can believers find comfort because of the declaration of judgment, the details of judgment, the distress of judgment, but lastly, the director of judgment. At the same time, uh, not only can non-believers be distressed or concerned by the declaration of judgment, the details of judgment, and the distress of judgment, but lastly, also the director of judgment. Verse 13, notice, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots and spoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. God is the director of all judgment. God is speaking directly to the Ninevites. He is against them. He will burn up all of the chariots that brought them so much victory in the past. These chariots that has once been dragged by these powerful horses to pillage, raid, and ransack other nations so easily will be decimated by God. The destruction of these chariots represent wiping away of the instrument of oppression by which they have used to torment and afflict other nations. 
God is powerful more than any man-made instruments. God will show his power by destroying the most powerful instrument of war at the time. He will burn it all up. Do you notice that he writes, a sword will devour your young lion. This means that God will destroy the entire royal line. There will be no one there to take the throne. It is interesting to note that God is able to protect his people, which is in turn is protecting his bloodline that's carrying the line of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He will protect his line by destroying all of the other lines. Notice he wrote, he wrote Nahum writes, I will cut off your prey from the land. This lion motif continues. The victims of Nineveh will be no more. They will no longer... There will, be, there will no longer be anyone that the Ninevites can overthrow or, or impose their will upon. God and his just wrath will, move, will, move, will remove every prey from the land. A nation cannot lead if they have no one to rule over. Notice at the very end of verse 13, and no longer will the voice of the messengers be heard. This echoes this opening statement of this chapter. The messenger peace declares that God will save but for the Ninevites, there will be no such message. Every one of them will be destroyed, and there wouldn't be anyone to be sent out of a nation to threaten them or to warn anyone else. God will make an end to the Ninevites. All four of these show the power of the Ninevites, and the Lord, Lord used the Ninevites' own methods to punish them. The language describes this coming destruction as a it already have taken place. There's this assurance in God's word. The God of Israel reigns and no individual or nation can stand up against God. It is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. Not only is God against the Ninevites for their sin, but God is also against you for your sin if you're continually living in sin. This passage should bring chills down your spine. To know that the God and Lord of all creation is against you is the most horrifying phrase you will ever hear. And this threat is real. And if you are still in your sin, there is no arbiter for you. No one can defend your case. Your sin lays bare before God and you stand guilty. God knows all of your sin and he is against you. God is coming and there is only one way that you can get out of God's wrath, and that is to repent, to run directly to God. Jesus tells us about how foolish it is for a person to try to go to war without counting the cost, counting costs in hopes that they can win. If you are against God right now, you will lose. Go to him for salvation so he can deliver you from his wrath. But if you're a Christian today, your role is like Nahum here. You're supposed to give this message to those who do not know Jesus. Our role as, as an ambassador for Christ is to tell the enemies of what is to come. If we were to use the, the war illustration in, in, in relative to our evangelism, you understand that our job, if it's, if it's a war, is just to go and tell the people to sign the terms of surrender. That's our job. We, know, we already know that our king is going to win, so we're just telling people that, hey, you need to give up now. It's, it's over for you. We have the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. There's no way you can win. You might as well surrender. 
That is our job when we do evangelism. We go and tell people of the power of our God to not only destroy, but to save. We tell people who don't know God of what is to come so that they will repent. And if they don't repent, we tell them of the judgment that is coming for them. We are heralders of good news, and we declare the gospel because we represent the one true king. And for those who do not know Christ, this God here is against you. Contrary to what the secular world thinks about God, how he is always for you, he wants what's, what's best for you, and he only cares about you, and it's all about you, you, and you. No, God is against you. He is currently not for you. He is your greatest enemy. He is opposing you. God has his wrath aimed directly at you, and he never misses. God is against you, and the only way for you to be saved is to repent and place your faith in him and him alone. You may have stored up a whole bunch of wrath, but God is more than willing to forgive you. Don't be like like the Ninevites in Nahum's time. Be like the Ninevites in Jonah's time. Be like the people who, when they hear of God's message of judgment, that it softens their hearts so that they could cry out to God for repentance. My hope is that if you have not placed your faith in Jesus today, that you would humble your heart. That you would see that everything that is written if, uh, it has come true in the past and it will come true again. If you have not given your life to the Lord, that you would do it today. And, and for those who are believers, who have placed their faith in the Lord, rejoice. Find comfort in his word. All the promises of his words will come to pass. And this is the, the blessings of God's word that reveal to us what will happen. We can trust with absolute certainty that every single word of God is true because we worship the God that has power over all things. For those who are believers, may you continue to trust in God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word and all of his promises and truth that are in it. Lord, there are moments that we struggle and we doubt your word, but your word always gives us assurance to know that you, while the author of this book, gives us great assurance, give us great hope and, and joy that this is the, the book that you've given us to know you, not only to know you, but know what plans you have for us, um, and not just in this life, but the life that is to come. Lord, we're grateful for your word, and may we cherish your word more daily. May it saturate our minds, may it transform us to be more like your son. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you today, that you would humble them, uh, whether it's through this passage or other passages of scripture, that you will reveal their sin and their desperate need to cry out to you. Lord, allow them to see and open their hearts uh, to receive you as their savior today. And Lord, we pray that as we go about this day, and this week, that we are faithful heralds, helder, heralders of your truth. May, we, may you give us more opportunity to share the gospel with the people that are in our lives, whether it's family, friends, and coworkers, or even strangers, Lord. Give us the opportunity to go and, and tell them of the judgment that is to come, and the way, and the only way for them to escape your wrath. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for your attention. Happy Father's Day. I hope you guys enjoy the Sunday. And uh, also have a blessed week. Thanks.